Well, good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you this morning. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 11 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack in front of you or beneath you so that you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Uh, We want to be engaging His Word regularly. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, we would encourage you to take that one home with you. Consider it our gift to you. Read it, study it, know God in His Word, and and, uh, experience His power to change your life. Last week, as we studied in Hebrews chapter 11, we saw the author of Hebrews put forth Moses... ...as an example of what it looks like to live by faith, like we just sang about. In the story, however, it wasn't just about the faith of Moses. It was also about the faith of his parents and the faith of the people of Israel as they observed that first Passover. We talked about three big ideas last week when we got to application. First, we said we must give our children, the ones who live in our homes and the ones who live in our neighborhoods... Every opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what baby dedication was about. Uh, We are not bestowing salvation upon them. That is not ours to give. The Lord is the Lord of salvation. It belongs to him. He will give grace as he sees fit. But it is our responsibility to give those children every opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ in this church and in these homes. And we are in that together. It's not just about these parents standing up here on their own, uh, raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We will join them in that. We will support them in that. And we will come alongside them in that. VBS is another great opportunity uh, to give children an opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be doing that. Secondly, we talked about the importance of experiencing both the positive and negative identification like Moses did. You remember at one point in Moses' life, he said, I am not an Egyptian. I am a Hebrew. I am not one of these people. I belong to God. And we must experience the same thing in our lives where we say, I am not of this world. I am a child of God. But hear me clearly. That is about more than just declaring something with your lips. Because anybody can say that with their lips. It is about living a demonstrating life that we do not belong to this world. We belong to God. People should be able to tell that by the way we live our lives. And then finally, uh, we talked about the Passover a little bit last week. That by faith, they observed that first Passover. And we talked about that lamb that was slain. And the blood of that lamb being put on the door of each Hebrew house. And when the angel of death passed over, that blood covered them and they were saved. And we talked about a better lamb whose name is Jesus Christ, right? And we talked about how all of us are sinners by our nature and our choice. And because we are sinners and God is holy, we deserve death and hell and wrath for all of eternity. But God loves us. And he demonstrates his love for us in that even while we were sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Jesus came to earth and he lived a life that we could not live. And on the cross, he took our sin upon himself as if our sin belonged to him. And he suffered the wrath and the death that you and I deserve, died on the cross for us. And after he died, they put him in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose again in victory over sin and death and all that would hold us down. And he offers us life. He offers us life and forgiveness of sins. He offers us a cleansing that is not just on the outside, but on the inside, goes deep into our hearts. He offers us eternity in heaven with him. And we receive that gift, not by working for it, not by paying him back, 
but by believing, by trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins and walking in him in faithfulness. There's a better lamb that provides a better salvation than Moses knew anything about at that time. And his name is Jesus Christ, and I hope that you trust in him today. Well, this week in Hebrews chapter 11, we see the pace quicken extremely. The pace gets faster and faster as we get to the end of Hebrews chapter 11. No longer are we going to have long multi-verse examples of people who live by faith, but rather to drive the point home, the author will begin to use quick references to rich stories in the Old Testament to describe what faith looks like and to encourage his people to hold fast to Jesus Christ, to live by faith and not by sight like we sing about, even when life gets hard. Even when everything seems to be going wrong, he tells these people to hold on to Jesus. Don't turn away from Jesus. So today, one verse. I said that this morning with the guys that we pray with early on Sunday mornings. And one of them said, just, just one verse? Like, like, like you weren't going to get your money's worth today. <laughs> one verse. And it is rich. And there is so much backstory that we'll have to spend time on. But one verse in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's verse 30. And this is what it says. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we are thankful to be in this place today. It is so good to be together and see what we have seen and have the conversations we've had today and study your word together. It's been so good. And we thank you for the privilege of being together like this. And we pray now as we look at this one verse from your word that is so rich that you will speak to us, that you will convict us, that you will encourage us, that you will grow us and conform us to the image of Christ that you open our eyes to see things we have not seen and our ears to hear things we have not heard. And God, we pray that you, like you did with Lydia in Acts, that you open our hearts to receive it all. We, we don't want to just know these things with our brains. We want our hearts to be changed by your word today. So we pray that you have your way in this place. We submit ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. And we ask you to change us by your grace, for our good, and ultimately for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's it. That's, that's all he says about this rich story from the Old Testament. And there is quite a bit of backstory that we need to remember. And once again I want to reiterate that the, the author of Hebrews didn't have to go back over the details of the story of Joshua and Jericho. He could just mention it this quickly. He could just say, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled seven days. And everyone who received this letter initially would have known all the details of that story. But we're not like that, unfortunately. Unfortunately, we are not as familiar with the Old Testament. And so we will spend most of our time today recalling the story of Joshua and Jericho. We'll tell the story today. But before we get to that, I want to draw your attention to something that is not in Hebrews chapter 11. A pretty glaring omission that we need to take notice of. Up to this point in chapter 11, the author has been hitting every major period of Old Testament history. He talked about creation. He talked about the patriarchs. He talked about Joseph and the sojourn to Egypt. And then we had Moses and the Exodus. 
And then in chapter 11, verse 30, he goes straight to the conquest of Canaan. He goes straight to entering into the promised land. So what's missing? Well, what's missing is the period of wilderness wanderings. The 40 years where God's people wandered around in the desert and ate manna. So the question is, why would the author skip that period of Old Testament history? Well, the answer is, he didn't skip that period of Old Testament history. In fact, if you remember from our study of Hebrews, he spent extensive time in that period of Old Testament history, but he used that period not as an example of what faith looks like, but what an example of unbelief and lack of faith looks like. And he used that period for chapter after chapter to warn the people what it looks like to forsake the faith, to turn away from the Lord and walk away from him. It leads to pain, it leads to trouble, and ultimately it leads to destruction. So the author of Hebrews would be absolutely out of line to use the wilderness wanderings period as an example of what faithful living looks like because he's already used it as an example of what unfaithful living looks like. Does that make sense? So he skips over it, appropriately so, in chapter 11. Now, does that mean that during the time of wilderness wanderings there weren't some examples of faithfulness? Sure there were. Sure there were. There were stories about people who were bold. There were stories about people who were faithful. But those were the exception during the period of wilderness wanderings and not the rule. In a similar way, aren't there stories in Abraham's life or Moses' life about times when they were less than faithful? Absolutely. But those periods of unfaithfulness were the exception and not the rule. And so... The author of Hebrews rightly skips over the period of wilderness wanderings as he talks to us about what faith looks like. So I, I say all of that to say this. Let's not forget as we study chapter 11 about the lessons we learned in chapter 4 or chapter 5 about the dangers of unbelief. Let, let's not forget the lessons we learned about the dangers of unbelief when we talked about the period of wandering in the wilderness. So... As we look at uh, Hebrews 11.30 and we think about Joshua and Jericho, the backstory that the author is referring to is found in Joshua chapters 2 through chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible in front of you and you want to turn back to Joshua chapter 2, you can follow along as I give you the Cliff's Notes version of Joshua chapters 2 through 6. And I said that to somebody last week and they said, stop calling it Cliff's Notes and start calling it Chris's Notes. So I will. <laughs> You're going to get the Chris Notes version of, of Joshua chapters 2 through 6. Actually, we need to back up a little bit before that and tell you that Moses did not enter the promised land with the people of God. God let him see it from a mountain. If you remember this, God took him up a mountain and he said, look, that's the place that I'm going to give to your people. Look, that's the place uh, that I have promised to your fathers and the fathers before you. That's the place that the people are going to possess. But then God said, you're not going. Moses, you are not going. And that's a story for another day uh, about a period of unfaithfulness in Moses' life and the consequences of that. But God said to Moses, you're not going. But Moses, in the process, handed the baton of leadership of God's people to a man named Joshua, who, by the way, was one of only two faithful people at the beginning of the whole wilderness wanderings event. 
If you remember right, that whole process of wandering around in the desert for 40 years was due to the unfaithfulness of the people when the spies came back from checking out the promised land the first time. Twelve spies went in to check out the promised land and they came back and two of them said, God will give it to us. God is ahead of us and he is going to give us the land. And those two guys were Joshua and Caleb. But the ten others said, we can't go in there. We're like ants and grasshoppers compared to those people. They are giants. We don't stand a chance. And the people, rather than trusting in the Lord to give them the land that he had promised, they cowered in fear. And they walked away from the Lord. And as a punishment, all of that generation died in the wilderness except two guys, Joshua and Caleb. So here, at the end of Moses' life, he hands the baton of leadership to Joshua. And Joshua is the one who will take the people into the promised land. And one of Joshua's first moves in leadership was to send some more spies in. In fact, you read about this at the beginning of chapter 2. He sent more spies into the land to check out the promised land once again, to see how fortified these cities were and how strong they were. He especially told those spies to check out Jericho because Jericho was going to be the first city that would have to be defeated if they were going to take the promised land as a possession. Once they crossed the Jordan River, Jericho would be the first stop. So Joshua sends spies to check out Jericho. And when they get to Jericho, you may remember that there's an interesting scene with those spies and a prostitute who lives in Jericho whose name is Rahab. And I'm going to talk to you about that story next week. That's the subject of next week. We're going to talk about the faith of Rahab. Uh, So if you want to hear a story about some spies and a prostitute, come back next week and we'll talk all about that. But we're not going to go there today. That's the subject for next week. When the spies return from Jericho, they report to Joshua what they had seen. And their report was far different from the faithless report of the spies who had gone in uh, from their father's generation. You see, these spies, they did talk about fortified cities. They did talk about giants and warriors. But they said this, and this is in uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 24. They said to Joshua... Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Nothing had really changed, right? In the promised land, the giants were still there. In the promised land, the cities were still fortified. In the promised land, there were still great warriors. But their faith had changed. And these spies came back to Joshua and they said, The Lord's already given us this land. And they spoke with great confidence in the power of God to provide what he had promised. So, with great confidence, Joshua led the people to cross over the Jordan River. And what a crossing it was. The Jordan River was swollen with rains. And Joshua commanded the priests to take the Ark of the Covenant before the people of God into the river. And as those priests stepped into the river, the waters of the Jordan River stopped flowing downstream and began to build up behind them. And the priests went out into the middle of the river and they stood in the middle of the river on dry land with the Ark of the Covenant. And all of God's people were able to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land on dry land. All the while, the priests were standing there holding the Ark of the Covenant and the waters were being backed up behind them. It was an incredible day similar to the crossing of the Red Sea in which Moses led them out of Egypt. Do you remember that? 
So there's a lot of parallel going on there. And then when they got to the other side, something neat happened. Joshua said, hey, a couple of you guys, in fact, one person from all of the 12 tribes, you need to go back down into the river where the priest is standing with the Ark of the Covenant. And each one of you get a rock. Get a rock from the middle of the river and bring it up to the shore on the side of the promised land and build an altar of remembrance there so that when we pass by this place in generations to come and our children say, what's that strange pile of rocks doing there, Dad? You can tell them, those rocks came from the middle of that river. And your grandpa was in the procession when God backed up the waters and the people crossed into the promised land. He said, you pile those rocks up there so that everyone will remember what the Lord has done in bringing his people into the promised land. So what a crossing of the river it was on that day. And then once they got across the river, Joshua gave them some pretty interesting commands. First, he told the people to circumcise themselves once again. I think when we preached through Joshua a few years ago, I was on vacation that week. That was a good week to go on vacation, right? And let somebody else preach that part of it. Joe, you had it, didn't you? Yeah. So they get into the promised land, and the first order of business, once they've entered the land that God has chosen to give them, Joshua says to all the men, you must be circumcised again. And you know what happened? They did it. They did it. They followed Joshua's command, and they circumcised themselves, and then they spent some time healing. (laughs) They spent some time resting and healing. This is all in the scriptures. I'm not making this up. (laughs) They spent some time healing, and once they had healed, the second thing they did was they observed the Passover. They observed the Passover in the promised land because evidently for the 40 years they traveled around in the wilderness, they'd forgotten to do it. Can you imagine that? The key event that brought them out of bondage, out of slavery, as they're wandering around for just 40 years, just one generation, somehow they forgot about the Passover and they had failed to observe it. And so Joshua tells the people to observe the Passover. There's another interesting note right there in the story. It says that after they observed the Passover in the promised land, they began to eat of the fruit of the land. You remember how the land is described in several places in the Old Testament? A land flowing with milk and honey. And do you remember that cluster of grapes that the original spies brought back from the land? It was so big that two of them had to hold it on a stick in between them to carry it back. I I was thinking about that just this week at home. We had bought some grapes and Asher was pumped about these grapes because some of them were big. But then there were some little tiny baby grapes. And he was just really excited about the little tiny baby grapes. And it made me think about, man, if we think that grape is big, imagine a grape cluster so big that you've got to put it on a stick so that two men can carry it back. So they began to eat the produce of the land flowing with milk and honey. And you know what happened when they started eating the land, eating the fruit of the land? The manna stopped. God had been providing food for them as they wandered around. But once they got into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey that the Lord was giving to them, he didn't have to provide manna, supernatural, mysterious food from above for them anymore. He had provided them a land that they could eat from. And so they did. They began to eat from the land. So after they got across the river, Joshua led the people in some spiritual reflection. Circumcision, Passover, before he led them into battle. That's really important. And then after this, there's an interesting scene. 
that is often overlooked when we tell the story of Joshua and Jericho. We want to get straight to the walls came tumbling down and the people rushed in. But there is this strange scene at the end of chapter 5 going into chapter 6 where Joshua is close to Jericho. And we don't know exactly why he was there, but he was near to Jericho, maybe doing his own kind of last-minute spying, his own last-minute recon of the city. And as he's close to Jericho, he sees a man. He sees a man who has his sword drawn. And Joshua, the warrior, the general, approaches this man and essentially says, are you with us or are you with them? Are you with us or are you with our enemy? And the man says to him, no. What a great answer, right? Are you with us or are you with them? No. He says, no, I am the captain of the Lord's army. I am the captain of the Lord's army. Now, there are a lot of people, a lot of scholars who think that this is a theophany or maybe more particularly a Christophany. In other words, this is not an angel. This is not a warrior. This is the Lord himself appearing in flesh and having a conversation with Joshua. And there are a lot of good reasons to think that even from the text itself. Even from the text itself, there's a good reason to think that this is the Lord who is talking to Joshua in this instance. So Joshua sees the man. The man has his sword drawn. He says, I'm the captain of the Lord's army. And Joshua's immediate move is to bow himself before this man. And he says, what do you have to say to me? What do you have to say to me, captain of the Lord's army? And the first thing the captain says to Joshua is, take off your shoes. Take off your shoes because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, sounds like the same thing the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush. The last leader of God's people, God told him to take his shoes off because the place was holy ground. Now this character says the same thing to the next leader of God's people. This is a little bit of the evidence why we think this is the Lord who is speaking to Joshua. And so Joshua takes his shoes off and he bows himself before this leader. And then the, the captain of the Lord's army begins to give Joshua some instructions. And we've got to remember that Jericho is a fortified city. It's fortress. It was built to withstand attack. And the Lord said to Joshua, I have given Jericho, along with its soldiers and its king, into your hand. Here's the plan to how you're going to take Jericho. He said, have your fighting men accompany the priests. Get your soldiers and the priests. And have the priests take ram's horns with them. Uh, ram's horns, trumpets, uh, called a shofar in, in, in the original language. And make sure you've got the Ark of the Covenant with you while you do this. So we've got soldiers and priests with horns, priests with horns, and the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the representation of the presence of God amongst his people, right? Soldiers, priests, horns, and the Ark of the Covenant, and this is what you're going to do. For six days, one time a day, you're going to march around the city of Jericho in total silence. 
And then on the seventh day, you're going to go back to Jericho and you're going to march around the city seven times. And when you get around the seventh time, have the priest blow the trumpet, have the people shout and, and the walls will come tumbling down. And then you'll go in every man straight ahead and you will take Jericho because the Lord is giving it to you. What a strange battle plan, right? I hope, I hope our generals are not discussing those kind of things uh, in the war room today, right? This is not good military strategy, but this is the captain of the Lord's army speaking to him. This is the Lord himself telling Joshua, this is the plan. And Joshua obeys. He tells the people. And the people obey Joshua. What faith that took, right? We're going to attack. This is our plan of attack for the most fortified city. In Deuteronomy, it talks about cities that were fortified up to heaven, Jericho included. This is our plan to attack this city. And yet they believe and they trust in what the Lord has promised and they go for it. So guess what happens? For six days, they march around the city one time in total silence. The soldiers, the priests with trumpets... The Ark of the Covenant. I read one scholar that said it would have taken about two hours to walk from Gilgal, which is where they were camped, to Jericho. But once they got to Jericho, it would have only taken about half an hour to walk around that city. I, I didn't realize that. I didn't, I didn't have any concept of the scope of the walk. Two hours to get there, half an hour to walk around, two hours back to camp. Six days in a row they do this in absolute silence. What do you think the people in Jericho were thinking during those six days? No telling, right? Look at these fools walking around the city. And then they leave every day. They come back. Watch, watch. They'll be back tomorrow. (laughs) And then on the seventh day, they take the ark and they take the ram's horn, the soldiers and the priests, two hours to Jericho, and they march around seven times. Talk about a fool's parade that day, right? Seven times. Seven times they go around the city of Jericho. And you remember what the command was? At the end of the seventh time, the priests are to blow the trumpet, and then the people are to shout, and then the walls will come tumbling down, and they will go in and take the city. Have you ever wondered what that sounded like? I wondered what that sounded like. And so I got a shofar. This is a trumpet. A ram's horn trumpet. And I would like to tell you that there's some kind of great story behind this about how I met a man in an airport when I was traveling the world. (laughs) He had long tassels and a fringe on his coat and he's happened to have this in his briefcase and he gave it to me as a gift. But the reality is I ordered it from Amazon Prime. (laughs) On Tuesday, I got it Thursday. You can buy anything on Amazon. <laughs> it, it smells kind of weird. It's like, it's like a legit ram's horn right here. So this is what it would sound like. <laughs> never, had, never, had, never had one lesson. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Yes, that's... <laughs> I don't know if it would have been like, thank you, Calvin. (laughs) So the priest blew the trumpet, and then the people shouted. (laughs) 
I still think it's weak. Maybe it's the trumpet blowing. There would have been more trumpets, right? There were seven, seven trumpets. I, I didn't have that much money. <laughs> it wasn't cheap, this thing. All right, one more try. Okay. <laughs> yes. And then the walls fell down. And the people took the city, the fortified city, up to heaven. The walls fell down. This was not normal. That city would have withstood a normal attack. But this was not a normal attack. This was a supernatural attack. Let me ask you this question. What brought down the walls of Jericho? God and his power brought down the walls of Jericho by the faith of the people, through the faith of the people. They obeyed him, and their obedience was trust in him. They blew the trumpets, they shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. It's kind of like salvation in that way. We are saved by God's grace. His grace is the power that saves us. But we receive that grace through faith. You see, his power and his authority and his grace and our faith kind of always go together. They work together. By grace, through faith, are you saved. By the power of God, through the faith of the people, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. That's a good story, right? And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at when he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. What? After they had been encircled for seven days. I think there are three good applications from this story. Number one, our faith is demonstrated through obedience. Faith is demonstrated through obedience, even when the Lord's commands seem very strange. This is a very strange command. March around, march around, march around, march around. Blow the trumpet, shout, city's yours. And the people obeyed. <laughs> and I've got the feeling that it wasn't this timid obedience I got a feeling that because of that meeting with Joshua and the captain of the Lord's army, that Joshua didn't say, here goes nothing, guys. I say that sometimes. Like when I don't think something's going to work, usually in my dad's shop, here goes nothing, guys. Crank, crank, crank. Right? We don't have a lot of confidence a lot of times. But I don't think Joshua had any of that. Because he had met the Lord with his sword drawn, knowing that the Lord was going to fight for him, gave him absolute confidence. And so he said, this is what he said. This is what we must do. Obedience is the demonstration of faith, even when God's commands are strange. Does God give us strange commands today? Yeah, he does. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's strange. That's not the way my neighbor operates. My neighbor operates with this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You hit me, I'll hit you. But Jesus tells us to love our enemy and to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us to preach to dead men. He tells us to speak the gospel to people who love the world and love the darkness and tell them to repent and trust in Jesus and walk in the light and they'll do it. They'll live. That's a strange command. He says, I want you to go out there into the midst of the wolves, but you're a sheep. You're a sheep. You're a defenseless little sheep, but I'm sending you out into the wolves. That's a strange command, right? 
He tells us at one point, if you want to be great, you got to be least. If you want to be the highest, you got to be the servant of everyone. That's a strange command, right? All of those things are found in the scriptures. And then there are more that are found in our everyday lives. Sometimes the Lord tells us to quit our jobs and to move to a difficult and dangerous place to take the gospel. Sometimes he tells us to adjust our lifestyle and give sacrificially to send workers into dangerous places with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes he calls us to open our homes to children in need, some of whom have special physical needs and some of whom have special behavioral issues. And he calls us to open our homes voluntarily, willingly, making our life more difficult for the sake of a child. Faith is demonstrated through obedience, even when the Lord's commands seem strange. You got that kind of faith? You got the kind of faith that would say, march around, march around, blow the trumpet, shout, I'm in. Of course, this is the way it's going to work. Do you have the kind of faith that would say, yeah, I'm out. I'm out of law practice, moving my family to Central Asia. I'm in, of course. Is that what your faith looks like? It's what Joshua's faith looked like. It's what Israel's faith looked like. It's what faith is supposed to look like. Faith is demonstrated through obedience, even when the Lord's commands seem very strange. Number two, when one man courageously obeys the Lord, it can make a huge difference for the people around him. Joshua, he didn't balk. He obeyed the Lord with confidence. He didn't say, here goes nothing. This may sound crazy. He didn't give a lot of apologies when he told them what to do. He simply trusted the Lord and the people around him were emboldened to trust the Lord as well. He had met with the Lord, he had heard from the Lord, he was obeying the Lord, and the people around him were glad to follow him in that. One man's courageous obedience, courageous, faithful obedience can make a huge difference on the people around him. And we've seen that at First Baptist Church. We have seen the difference our friends in Central Asia have made in this body. Leave the law practice, move to a dangerous place, take on all the trouble and pain that comes with that because it's what the Lord has said. That has made us more willing to give to missions. That has made us more willing to go to places like that. That has made us more willing to pray for those who are going to places like that. That has changed things at First Baptist Church, has it not? The obedience of of one man, courageous obedience in faith of one man makes a difference. We've seen that with the Pharaohs. In the midst of their loss, in the midst of their pain, living with courageous, faithful obedience has made a difference in this place. Has it not? It makes a difference when one of us will be courageous and obedient in following the Lord. My question is, whose life is different because of your faith? Who is inspired because of your courageous, faithful obedience to the Lord? And if the answer is no one, not even my children, not even my best friends, there's a problem there. There's a problem that you need to consider carefully. So, faith is demonstrated through obedience, even when the Lord's commands are very strange. When one man's When one man is courageously obedient, it can make a huge difference for the people around him. And third, 
If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Joshua saw the Lord with his sword drawn. And because of his confidence in the Lord, he went forward with the plan. He had seen the Lord and heard from the Lord and moved forward with confidence. If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And let me tell you this, he's for us. He's for us. You know why I can say that with confidence? Because he sent his son to die for us. He showed us he was for us by sending Jesus to die in our place and rise again so that we could be adopted into his family, so that we could be saved by grace and forgiven of our sins. He is for us. And there's no greater demonstration of that than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's for us, who could possibly be against us? We can live with courageous, faithful obedience because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ died for our sins and was buried and was raised according to the scriptures. So let's be bold and courageous. Let's blow the trumpet and shout and watch the walls come tumbling down. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we're thankful for this story. We're thankful for your commands that seem very strange sometimes. And we want to be a, faith, a people who live with faith that is demonstrated through obedience. And we want that courageous, faithful obedience to make a difference for the people around us. We want to be encouragement for others to step forth boldly in faith. We want to be encouragement for others to be fearless in the face of the enemy. We know that if you are for us, no one could stand against us. And so we pray that you teach us to live with bold faith. But God, we recognize in a room like this that there are some who have no faith. They don't have bold faith. They don't have any faith. I pray today that you will teach them the gospel in a way that only you can, that you will show them their sinfulness, bring conviction by your spirit. Only you can teach that to a person's heart. Only you can show a man his sin. So we pray that you would, by grace, that you would show them that. And in their brokenness, in their desperation, I pray that you will turn their eyes to the cross, help them to see that Jesus died in their place, that he took their sin upon himself and suffered the wrath that they deserve. I pray that you'll help them to see that clearly and to trust in it fully. That you would give them faith to believe and trust in Jesus' work alone for their salvation. I pray that you will also give them repentance to turn away from the lifestyle of sin and walk towards you in faithfulness every day. God, we, we are asking for you to raise the dead in this place today. We are asking you to save sinners in this place today. And we want it for their good, for their eternal good, but ultimately for the glory of your great name that you would be seen as the God who rescues, the God who resurrects, the God who saves. So do a work in this place and be glorified. In Christ's name we pray.